22nd Psalm reads as follows, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up into the house of the Lord. The sense of gladness that we each may feel, the sense of privilege that's ours to come together this evening is truly a great one. And how wonderful it is to be able to sing songs of praise unto God, to lift up our thoughts and prayers unto Him, and to open His Word and let it touch our lives that we may be strengthened and bettered in the tomorrow than perhaps we have been today. As we might well anticipate, we continue our series of studies on the Colossian letter this evening, and we come to the eighth installment in that series tonight, in the fourth chapter of that book. Specifically, we'll cast the spotlight on Colossians 4, verses 2 through 9, and as we look at those passages this evening, that likely will set before us the understanding that we should complete the series, if it be the will of our Heavenly Father, next Lord's Day evening, by completing that fourth and final chapter of the book of Colossians. As we turn our attention, though, to this last letter, the last chapter, I should say, of that letter, it is certainly not the case that the last chapter is something to be ignored or something to be overlooked. From time to time, we may be of a disposition that when we reach the end of a letter that someone has written, it gets to the points of salutation, and we are able to spend less time thinking about what may be said there in terms of substance. That certainly is not the case here. The inspired apostle under the direction of the Holy Spirit is still able to share many noble things and earnest qualities, things that the Colossians should certainly take to heart and implement at once if they would live in a way that's pleasing unto God. To briefly review and to bring us to the point of the establishment of the beginning of tonight's lesson, consider just a few of the things we've seen throughout the series such things as the exalted character and nature of Jesus that all revolves around Him. We also came to appreciate the central importance of His church, how that membership therein and faithful membership therein is not only important, but it's eternally vital, absolutely essential. And then we came to appreciate what it means to serve Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of His. In fact, Colossians 1 verse 10 specifically asks much about that. And is it not also the case that in chapter 3, we learned what things that we should add to our lives and also certain things that must not be present therein? That word mortify, in fact, was used with great emphasis. Put to death certain things, that is, they ought not be a part of my life or yours. And thus, by noting what was to be left out, we then came to understand the duties that we could have as those husbands and wives, those fathers and mothers, those employers and employees. And that was our lesson last Lord's Day evening. That brought us to chapter number 4. And tonight, let us look at verses again 2 through 9. I would ask at the outset that you read verses 2 through 6 with me. Colossians 4, beginning in verse 2. And let's read through verse number 6. Continue in prayer, and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man." Those verses that we've just read, again, in many ways are not lengthy, but they are filled with wonderful practical teachings, and I invite your attention with me to these this evening as we consider how they touch my life and yours and how, 
on a very practical level, they can lead to a stronger sense of person by following those wordings found in other places, such as the intent to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. Thus, let's revisit verse number 2. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. It is an interesting thing to notice the language, the Greek language, I should say, that was originally used. The word itself that is there found to continue is in a certain tense that means it is imperative and furthermore it's active. Paul is thus enjoining a very powerful imperative upon his hearers. This is not an optional consideration. It's not something that we may take, choose to take or leave. In other words, this is all the forcefulness of commandment, continuing prayer. Isn't it amazing to notice that the Colossians, given the types of false teaching that they were facing, those false teachings dealing with angels or with other aspects of asceticism or that distinction between spirit and body, they had been captivated by much of that. And now Paul warns them, after having set them in correctness on much of that, be earnest and given in the character of prayer. How often we can learn throughout the Bible of the interesting necessity that it correlates to prayer. In fact, I've listed some things that we may each seriously contemplate. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul admonished, pray without ceasing. As he admonished the Thessalonian brethren, when we know that was a very similar statement, if you will, in structure to the one here, to have an attitude in which prayer is not only a regular thing, but a very frequently regular thing. It's possible for prayer to be regular but once a week. But that would not fit the character of Colossians 4.2. For there he says, continue in it and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Our prayers should be more regular than just once a month, once a week, only on the Lord's day, if you will. He admonishes the Colossians, you will be able to find sustenance and spiritual strength by virtue of your beseeching the Lord to aid you in that matter. Some other passages to consider in Luke 18.1. We remember that Jesus uttered this interesting statement when he said that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Is it not an easy thing for us to come to the point where we think that we may well devise our own strategy and make our own way? And we perhaps think that prayer is not as essential as it really is. And if we're not careful, we allow a day or two or three to pass and yet have never profoundly entered into prayer to our Heavenly Father. We only shall become weak if we allow that to happen. He admonished the Colossians, you be earnest, continue in prayer. And in fact, the American Standard renders that in such a way that the actual wording has a degree of steadfastness within it. But I've listed some other thoughts for your consideration because Paul does. For he says, watch in the same. Notice that he encourages us to remember that we should also watch in that same attitude of prayer. Is it the case that prayer aids us to be watchful in our Christian life? Is it the case that prayer aids us to be such that our vision is proper and right in helping us discern what is appropriate and right? Certainly it does. For if we pray, we know that accomplishes two things. One, it focuses our attention on that which we're uttering. 
For we must truly pray with the Spirit and with the understanding, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. And thus, as we pray in that regard, it helps us focus on our own personal duty and our personal responsibility toward the fulfillment of the will of God. But also, it helps us see how wonderful it is to be able to place our concerns, our heartfelt interests, upon the shoulders of the omnipotent God of heaven. Is he not able to do all things that is in accordance to his will? For there is nothing impossible with him, Matthew 19, 26. And wasn't it true that Jeremiah proclaimed in Jeremiah 32, 17, the fact that the Lord's arm is sufficiently powerful and outstretched that it is able to do all things? When we thus pray with full confidence that God hears and answers, how powerful it can be. Some of the teachings that are also able to be written follow directly that last statement. In fact, your mind maybe has already raced to the point of James 5.16 with me. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We must believe that. We have every right to believe that. Prayer is not thus an idle activity. And Paul admonished the Colossians, be earnest in prayer. And in so doing, be watchful. In fact, that reminds us of the psalmist in Psalm 34, 15, when there he said, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, but his ears being open unto their cry. God hears the cries of those that are his faithful children, those who have an interest in living faithfully before him and who walk earnestly in that way. That's a great comfort, isn't it? To know that your prayers and mine redound in the halls of heaven by ascending before his throne. Revelation 8, verses 4 and 5. When we thus pray, might we notice that the last element of that verse is also significant. Watch in the same with thanksgiving. In the consideration of that element of thanksgiving, it would be well to pause and just note what better example might we have in regard to prayer than the Son of God Himself? When our Savior walked in the flesh on earth, was prayer important to Him? Was prayer an activity in which He often engaged? We notice a few passages, and I've taken all these from the book of Luke. But in Luke 6, verse 12, our Savior prayed all night on the night prior to the selection of the apostles. We also notice in Luke 11, verse 1, the fact that there the disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray, and he very quickly did so, helping them see the proper structure and those things to incorporate in prayer. In Luke 9, verse 28, our Savior on the Mount of Transfiguration, as his appearance changed to a glistening and marvelously bright white, he was praying. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, we notice on the cross he was able to pray to his heavenly Father for forgiveness on the part of those who were, had done this to him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we remember how often, three times he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me, if it be thy will. Our Savior was a person of prayer. We thus should be the same. And in that way, we too can have an element of strength that is not available to us otherwise. Indeed, it is still the case. And how powerful it is. The way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Though those words may have been written now well over two and a half millennia ago in Jeremiah 13 verse 23, they are as pertinent and as needful today as ever. 
the character thus of prayer coupled with the thanksgiving it makes possible allows me to stay the attitude that we perhaps are able to see next. This matter of thanksgiving, did not Paul say in Philippians 4 verse 6, the admonishing there and the power for us to understand that in everything, be, be not careful, be careful in nothing. And then he stated a reason why. But in everything with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. There's a tremendous and profound element in that, isn't there? The word careful means anxious. Are you and I those who allow worry to creep across our mind and allow it to cause us turbulent and restless nights? Do we allow it to cause our day to be filled with unproductivity because our mind is divided toward that which is before us? The word worry comes from a word that simply means to divide the mind. When you and I allow worry to cross our life, and to handcuff us to the point that it brings unproductivity, sleeplessness, and the other things, we've allowed worry to go too far. We have, in fact, allowed ourselves to come under the weight and burden of the difficulties in the day. Paul said, be anxious for nothing. But what, Paul, in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to the one who can aid you with peace of mind, who can aid you with tranquility of spirit, and who can aid you with an understanding of what is ultimately important in the life that is before you and me. Is it any wonder then the, the same inspired writer said in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, there, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ concerning you. It is God's will that we understand how thankful we can be and should be in our attitude toward Him for what He has accomplished toward us. To this point, our comments about prayer have been somewhat general. But Paul, in verses 3 and 4, becomes a bit more specific. There were certain things he desired them to pray about specifically. With all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Thus Paul tenderly beseeches the Colossians, Pray for me and pray for my companions, that as ambassadors and missionaries, if you will, of the gospel, that a door of utterance would be opened, a great productivity for the gospel would be experienced, and that we as preaching brethren would preach it in its plainness and in its simplicity as we ought to preach it. Oh, how much Paul stated in texts like that one. Is it not true that you and I can still so wonderfully pray that a door of utterance can be opened and thus when the gospel in this community or anywhere in our world is proclaimed, that hearts will be opened unto it and will at once fall prostrate before it and obey it with all the intent that was stated within it. A door of utterance. Isn't it interesting that on a different occasion to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9, Paul made a very interesting comment. A door of utterance, in essence, had been opened in Corinth, and Paul was thankful for that. Though Corinth was known as a licentious, wicked, and lascivious city, nonetheless, there apparently were fertile hearts in that place, and Paul was rejoicing and thankful that they were those who would be responsive to the gospel. Notice also in verse number 3 and 4, Paul desired, and he used the pronoun I, 
that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Every preacher and every Bible teacher with an interest in the truth of God has a desire to present what God has to say in plainness, in simplicity, in directness. It should never be the desire to present it in a confused or a way that's difficult to comprehend. Certainly I can echo the sentiment of Paul and I personally am appreciative for the prayers that you often utter in a public assembly on my behalf that what is said will be easy to understand, that what is said will be easily comprehensible. I certainly myself often pray that I should be able to do that. But I would ask you to notice that it says, as I ought to speak. That directly suggests that God in His will has revealed it in a simple way. If it is presented incomprehensibly, and if it is presented ununderstandably, that's my fault. I have failed in my responsibility, and so too has the other preacher or those who are in that position. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, we read about the simplicity that's in the gospel. That is the absolute purity to be found therein, and the wonder and joyous nature of how that it's possible for men to confuse that simplicity and to state it in ways that God never intended. In Nehemiah 8, verse number 8, we have an Old Testament example of this that is ever so far-reaching and penetrating. The children of Israel had, of course, been in captivity, but having come out of that, we notice that Nehemiah and Ezra were laborers as they strove to revisit and to bring again the purity and power of the Old Testament law of Moses before them. In the 8th chapter of Nehemiah, we notice that the congregation of Israel assembled. And from early morning until noon, Ezra and the other scribes stood up and read to them the law of Moses. And verse number 8 says it this way. As that proceeding took place, they had the desire to read it and to explain it in such a way that they could understand the reading. God's Word, both Old and New Testament, is thus understandable. Ezra didn't present it in a way that they couldn't comprehend it. His fellow priests were not of a desire to present it in a way that it went over their heads, if you will. And God desired His Word to be done simply in that way for us, too. It's often been noted that if you and I take the Scriptures themselves and take out all the proper words, that is, the rather lengthy words that may have proper names like cities and rivers and specific places, the average word length of what's left is only five letters. That's not a long word. No wonder even a child can understand God's Word, for that's the way He intended it. When it becomes to the point that it's not understandable, that's my fault, or others who attempt to speak and proclaim it in a way that's different than what God intended. That I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. How wonderful it is to understand the same thing was stated by Peter. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4.11. With those thoughts in mind, I would encourage you to notice some other things concerning the verse that follows. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time, Colossians 4, verse number 5. We find here a mention of wisdom. That character of life that's beset with not only knowledge but proper directions, it relates to the things of greatest import and importance. Wisdom. We each have no doubt been often reminded throughout the Bible of the imperative of wisdom. No doubt the book of Proverbs is the high point of the Old Testament regarding it. 
How often are we reminded, such as in texts like Proverbs 4, verse 7, Seek wisdom and ensue it, or with all thy getting, get wisdom. That's what we're admonished. Now, we know that wisdom is more than just a degree of knowledge. Now, it's true that true knowledge begins with the understanding of God and His will. But I'd ask you to notice here we're to walk in wisdom. That word walk means as it relates to one's conduct or one's behavior. And thus it has to do with the character of one's motions, if you will, in life. Day by day, do you and I so conduct ourselves to be in a manner of wisdom? We should. That degree of wisdom, as it's stated here, reminds us that the descriptions found therein are often those mentioned as in, for instance, James 1 verse 5. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally. Are you and I thus bereft of wisdom? Are we those that have an insufficient amount of it? We should pray, beseeching God that he would fill our lives through his word with greater degrees of wisdom so that we would have a clearer 2020 vision on what is important spiritually, what would be the proper decisions to make in life. Wisdom, the fact that we are to walk therein, signifies something rather impressive because notice it's qualified. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Isn't it interesting that we are admonished to set forth a proper Christian example, certainly to others who are Christians. We're often, in fact, as brothers and sisters in Christ, aided to remember that we can greatly admonish and exhort and influence one another. And in fact, that we've already been told in this book. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord, Colossians 3.16. Thus, as we teach and admonish each other, we have accomplished that by song. And that point alone is rather dramatic. This particular text, though, helps us see something else. That example that we're able to share. I'm reminded of what Paul, in fact, told the Corinthians. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. It should easily be the case, then, that any one of us should be able to say to any other Christian, You follow me in the sense that you observe and see me follow Christ. Obviously, that's a great challenge to all of us. Do you and I live that way every day? To the point that we could honestly and straightforwardly invite others to pattern their lives after you or me in the hope and intent that they see Christ in us. That's the point that Paul made. Notice that Paul wasn't lifting himself up as a person that would be like God. He said, in the extent that you see me follow Christ, you should be able to follow your life and pattern it after me. Other texts in that way in Philippians 4.9 we see Paul urging the Philippians to follow his pattern of what he did and said. Is my language and yours sufficiently pure? We'd invite anybody, anywhere, anytime to hear what we say and to mimic what they hear us say. Again, that's the nobility and that's the challenge set before us. Could we invite anywhere, anybody, anytime to watch what we do and imitate it? and rest assured that they would stand holily before God? That's a sobering question and a very profound one. In essence, that's before us in Colossians 4, verse number 5. 
But the point before us goes a bit deeper. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Perhaps we sometimes are more apt to let the thought of this passage slip by us. Toward them that are without. Toward them that are without what? Or to them that are without who? To them that are without Christ. To them that are without the gospel. To those who are not Christians. Is my life and yours also before those that are not Christians, just as holily set forth and just such that if they were to follow our pattern, that they could also come into understanding of what must be done to be saved? Toward them that are without. It again means that not only when we're gathered in the confines like this one, surrounded by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but also when we're on the job site, when we're in the community, and others are not members of the Lord's body, do they see in us the purity and power of the Son of God and the pristine, pure life that He admonished His followers to lead in us as well? That kind of question is the very matter of verse number 5. As you and I seek to walk in wisdom, might we remember the refrain of the closing verse of Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. The psalmist didn't qualify that by asserting that should only be the case if we're in a worship service or in a Bible study. That should be all the time that the words of my mouth and yours, the thoughts of my heart and yours, would be pleasing and acceptable and right. For after all, we read in 1 Timothy 4.12 that Paul admonished Timothy, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in purity, in spirit, in faith, in verity. Are you and I examples like that of both believers and non with regard to what is able to be said? These thoughts challenge us to see that it goes also into the next verse. And as we look at the next verse as well, might we perhaps bring the two together in the point of making some more comments about them. At the very bottom of that screen, I made note of a very obvious statement. Perhaps your father or mother or grandparents told each of us this at some point. We must be cautious as to what we do. The things we say, the places we go, because others are watching you. They know the claims we make in life. And they also easily can tell whether we follow what we've said we do. It is not hard to understand the simplicity of that idea. Thus, whether you and I are at work, whether we're at school, whether we're participating in an athletic or recreational activity, it's important to ever present to those that are without the matter of the fact we intend to walk in wisdom. And when we do that, they will observe also and hopefully take note and seek to bring their lives into compliance with the truth that our life has set before them. The idea that we walk in wisdom toward those that are without. It's entirely fair to say that hypocrisy in that way does great harm and great ruin to any intent and hope of ever bringing that person to see the power of Christianity. How often have you and I heard someone say, perhaps about ourselves or others, well... I lead a life as good as that person. That person, I saw him or her go here or there. I heard them say this or that. Notice again, that person has been turned off. That person has been greatly to the point of increased in their dissatisfaction and disfavor toward things of a biblical nature. 
because our example turned them off. Might we ask, could it be that they never again throughout the course of their life will find themselves in a position as close as they were to Jesus as they were prior to our example of hypocrisy? They may stand before God in judgment eternally lost and our example of hypocrisy may have been a part of what aided them to stand there in that, in that condition. Thus, all the time, be it at a worship service, be it at school, be it otherwise, our example of purity should be strong so that others as they see us will desire to imitate our life of holiness and thus please our Heavenly Father. It is a serious matter to so conduct ourselves in a way to purposefully distract and detract them from a life of godliness. Paul, in fact, made a statement in a way much along that line in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, I always buffet my body and bring it into subjection lest at any time I myself should become a castaway and have set before others an example of inappropriateness and an example whereby others would be caused by my failure of example to walk in a way that would be, un that would be improper and inappropriate. The obligation also extends, of course, to all means by which we conduct ourselves. The conversations that we carry on, the types of emails that we send, the types of information that is shared by a personal letter that we send to somebody. Do we give them the impression of one thing, but yet the implication is of another in terms of the Scriptures? Do we say things in our casual conversation that we hear others say and we think not much of it, and yet... It itself is something for which there's problems or difficulties in terms of scriptural truth. These things are challenging for each of us that we might also walk in wisdom toward them that are without. As the verse closes, he says, redeeming the time. That means, of course, not to be wasteful. To redeem means to buy back and to make the greatest advantage of, to make the most of. Do you and I thus make the most of each day that God blesses us with? Is it such that we are happily engaged in the activities of productivity in His cause and kingdom? Paul told the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12, that as they walked in toward, toward that kingdom and in that kingdom, that they were able to bring honor, of course, unto Him. These verses, of course, extend even into the next one. Let your speech be always with grace. Seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Our speech to be seasoned with salt. Hasn't Paul and, of course, the Holy Spirit made a beautiful play on words in a sense? We understand what salt is able to do for food. It gives it taste. It gives it flavor. It preserves. It improves the nature of it with regard to its tastefulness. Paul said, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Does my speech and yours thus improve or make better those with whom we speak? Does my speech and yours improve or exhort or in some way improve by extending grace to those who hear what we say? God has blessed us with the capability of language and communication. The animal kingdom does not have it nearly to the extent we do. The typical person with a vocabulary into the tens of thousands of words. We can choose to use them wisely. We can choose to use them foolishly. 
We can use language that's inappropriate or we can use language that is penetrating and strong and to the point and that encourages grace on the part of those who hear. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. To note Ephesians 4 verse 29. We note the easiness with which that verse attaches to this one. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Have you ever found yourself in a position where someone presents a situation to you, perhaps asks you a question, and the question has a tendency to work within you a sense of anger or wrath, or in some way rubs you or me the wrong way? Isn't it a strong tendency to answer in a way that we later might regret? To answer in a harsh or perhaps mean way? Paul says that we ought to know how to answer every man. Perhaps we can live a lifetime and never reach the fullness and maturity that we'd like to on that point, but we must strive for it. To so conduct ourselves in a way that we know how to answer every man. Peter addressed that as well in 1 Peter 3.15 when there he helped to see the need that as we seek to answer those about us that we ought to be prepared and have an answer for every man that asketh us a reason for the hope that's within us. Are you and I sufficiently knowledgeable of us of the Bible that when others ask us of our hope and the reason for it, we can with book, chapter, and verse set forth to them the absolute reason as to why we believe and do what we do for the plan of salvation, for the acts of worship, for the other conduct of life? That should be our goal, that we might know how to answer every man. As verse number 6 closes, we can see the impressive way that it leads us to the next three verses. Verses 7, 8, and 9. If you would, let's read these also and then return and make some comments about them as well. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. We learn another bit of history as it relates to the Colossian letter. As we recollect, Paul was in prison at the time that this letter was written, for it was one of the four prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. As Paul thus learned of the various circumstances surrounding these congregations, and he penned these various letters, we learn here that Tychicus was the one who carried this letter back to the church in Colossae. And we also learn that there's a gentleman named Onesimus who is mentioned in verse 9. We know he was very critically related to the book of Philemon. Onesimus was a slave who had run away from his master. The master's name was Philemon. And Philemon was a member of the church in Colossae. And in fact, that slave who had run away came into contact with Paul, and Paul aided in his conversion to the gospel, as we learn from reading the book of Philemon. However, as Onesimus was serviceable to Paul. Paul nonetheless was unwilling to maintain his services, but rather urged him as proper and right to return to Philemon. And yet with him, Onesimus carried the letter of Philemon back to him. As that history is played out before us, we notice in verse 7 that Tychicus is greatly complimented. He is called a beloved brother. 
He is called a faithful minister. He is called a fellow servant. He was one of those beloved individuals who labored side by side with the grand apostle throughout his New Testament ministries. Tychicus is mentioned on more than one occasion as a great friend of his, who was one who was described as indeed a beloved brother. We also notice in verse number 8, "...whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts." Tychicus would be able in thus bringing this letter of the Colossians to the church in Colossae, they'd be able to read and be strengthened in the way of truthfulness and to be moved aside from the false teachings and false doctrines that had so corrupted their way. And in that sense, they'd be comforted. And also, of course, they could learn about the nature of the one whom they so highly regarded, Paul himself. When Paul left that area to go preach elsewhere, they certainly must have had misgivings about his welfare, wonders about his health and other things, Tychicus would be able to share with them that this one who indeed was in prison was nonetheless in good health, for he was able to preach to all who came to him, Acts 28, verses 20 through 32. And thus in that way, verse number 9 closes, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. We also learned something dramatic about Onesimus. He was a runaway slave at first, but now a fellow servant of Paul's and a member of the body of Christ. Do we not learn an interesting lesson perhaps about the way that we can look upon others? When a person chooses to obey the gospel and approaches that with all the earnestness of spirit and mind that accompanies it, the former things in life are passed away. That person, no matter what would have been the case before, is now a member of the body of Christ. Paul didn't hold his past against him, that is Onesimus' past. Paul was such that he understood this man is now a faithful member of the body, able to be an encouragement to Philemon and others. We may each find ourselves in a situation like that. No wonder Paul said, forgetting those things that are behind. I press toward those things that are ahead. And he stated in Philippians 3.14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We can be thankful that when you and I become Christians, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Thus, in terms of a person's willingness and duty toward God, that person is embarking on a new journey, embarking on a new station in life. May we be an encouragement to those in that position, just as Paul was to Onesimus. And the verse closes, They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. The complimentary things stated about both Tychicus and Onesimus remind us of a day when, of course, there was no telephone. There was no email service. This information had to be passed as these gentlemen traveled long distances Rome was a long way from Colossae, and yet Tychicus and Philemon, or rather Onesimus, bore these letters, carrying them to their respective recipients out of their devotion to what Paul desired and their devotion to the kingdom of God. May you and I be as devoted today in our service. Though surrounded by conveniences, may we never lose sight of the great privilege that's ours in faithfully serving the Lord each day. This evening, as we've closed that ninth verse of Colossians 4, may we revisit that opening set of comments. Are you redeeming the time? Are you walking in wisdom? We each should be as we march toward eternity. 
It is, in fact, a one-way march. Once we arrive at the point of death, there is no coming back. We shall be judged on what took place in our life. Did we walk in wisdom? It'll be a sad thing to hear the Savior say, you walked foolishly. You knew what I demanded, but yet you never did that which I bade you do. You knew I died for you at Calvary, but never did you humbly submit yourself to what I demanded. At that point, it shall be far too late. Tonight, it might be that there's one or more in the audience in need of perhaps putting on the Lord in baptism, Galatians 3, 26 and 7. If that be the need of your life, let today be the day. This 30th day of March, 2008, what a momentous day in regard to eternity for you. If you have become a Christian previously in life, but you haven't lived redeeming the time, you haven't walked in wisdom toward those that are without, make a change in your life today. Rededicate yourself to the cause of the Lord and pursue at once the pathway that leads to everlasting glory. If we could be of assistance to you in either of those ways tonight, let that be known in a public way, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.